Company on NTS Radio, a monthly show for working women with me, Otega Uagba. If you're new to the show, a quick intro, I'm the founder of Women Who, which is a London-based community for creative working women. I'm also the author of Little Black Book, which is a modern career guide for working women and a Sunday Times bestseller, which you should definitely go out and buy. This podcast is all about providing you with the practical advice and fresh ideas that will help you work better, aided and abetted by some of the smart, successful, creative women I know. New episodes are released monthly and you can listen to them on NTS or you can download them via iTunes. So if you're not already, press subscribe now to make sure you get them straight to your phone. On today's show, I've got Sabine Zettler, who's the founder and co-director of Zettler, a PR agency specialising in art, design, film and other creative sectors. Zettler is one of those agencies that I imagine most people working in the London creative scene are aware of, such as their reputation and client list. I've admired Sabine from afar for a while now. She's an expert in the art of promoting creative brands, businesses and ideas. And she's also grown Zettler from a one-woman show into a team of many, which is no mean feat. I'm also back with Ask Otega, this time dealing with a freelancer who's unsure of how to deal with rude clients. More on that later though. For now, here's my conversation with Sabine. Hi, Sabine, and welcome to In Good Company. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a I'm pleasure. So excited to have you on the show. I've been following your work for a while now, um, and I really admire what you do and the way you work with your clients and the sorts of projects you work on. Um, but for anyone listening who maybe isn't aware of Zettler and what you do, could you just explain a little bit about Zettler? Sure. We're a small PR agency, although I'm generally quite uncomfortable calling myself a PR person, but we are essentially a PR company. Um, and we look after clients in the creative sector. And that can be anything from a major institution like the Crafts Council to a small local maker doing ceramics in Hackney. We've got a few other large clients like the Norwegian government who we help with their creative um, communications in the UK and then other fantastic um, businesses like paternity, you know, small independence, and we look after Camille Wallala, etc. So it's quite broad, but it's all within the wide reaching thing we call the creative sector. And how do you choose, or I suppose in some cases your clients choose you, but I feel like the thing that really stands out about Zettler is that you have quite a specific point of view about the types of clients you work with and mm-hmm. the type of work you do. So could you tell me a bit about that? How do you choose that? Yeah, again, it's quite human. So yes, we seek out some of our clients when we get very excited about something that we've seen or heard or um, invested in. Um, and then... Other times, I mean, we have a lot of people coming to us all the time, which is a massive luxury, but it's generally how we feel. So do I like the person that's got in touch with us? Do I believe what they're making? And you can believe a lot from the internet, but when you meet the person, what questions were they asking? What are their objectives? If their objectives are just purely commercial, hard and fast, really commercial, it just doesn't feel like it's right for us. I want them to at least thinking about having some aspect that's more conscious environmentally or socially or politically maybe but I mean that sounds a bit grandiose we do work with lots of people that make beautiful things and they want to survive selling them Mm. but generally yeah I I have to care about them as a human before we think about taking them on and representing them Mm. and I want to actually rewind a little bit and find Mm. out 
a bit about what you did before starting Zettler. Um, so could you just tell me a little bit about your career background? How did you come to be where you are now? What were you Definitely. Doing well, if I go backwards from here, um, which I think makes most sense in my trajectory, um, I've been doing this for about five years. So until two and a half years ago, I was on my own pretty much with a laptop. And now there's nine or ten of us in the office most days. So wow. it's grown quite a lot in the last couple of years. Um, and before that, I had a few clients and had my freelance editor who's been by my side throughout who none of this would survive without Anthony. He's a phenomenal writer and he's an absolute um, foundation of what we do because we're storytellers first and foremost. So mm. he has been with me since day one. But before these five years, I was at a travel company called Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Oh, yeah. So they're like boutique hotels and, you know, a lovely company that's now much bigger than it was when I first started. But I was there for four and a half years. Wow. And... Really, again, I see myself where I am now very much because of James and Tamara and particularly a marketing woman there called Aline Carolian, who I'd been working for as an intern when I was doing my degree. Mm. And then I got in touch with her after I finished my degree and I met their team. But James agreed to employ me despite knowing that I had no PR or marketing experience at all. Oh, so, that, so Mr. and Mrs. Smith was your first <laughs> PR role? Yeah, def yeah, absolutely. Okay. And it was meant to help Aline in their PR department. But really, I was employed there because I loved their brand. I mm. loved their company and I loved what they were doing. When it first started, you know, they were a recommendations guide mm. and it was just the tone was really beautiful and the imagery was really beautiful. And I loved how they spoke about hotels. They didn't care about star ratings they didn't care about all the other things that the travel industry cared about. They cared about how does a hotel feel when you walk into it? That in many ways seems similar to how I see Zettler's operating and that you're very much about the human side of the story. Definitely, yeah. And it was absolutely, I love, I really admire the fact that James didn't employ me because I had a degree in PR and I knew how to write the perfect PR proposal. You know, all of those things that in the end he wanted me and Tamara, like the whole team there, they wanted you to love what they do and go and tell journalists about it. Mm. And of course, there are strategies and there are things that you have to build to make that make sense in the real world. But actually, it's about that feeling and that true enthusiasm for what they were doing. And he wanted to bottle that and for me to go out in the world and to share those stories. I was about to say, that's the thing I think in PR that you really can't replicate is that true enthusiasm for whatever sort of brand or product or project that you're pitching. Mm -hmm. And that really comes across to whoever is on the receiving end. Like I occasionally get pitches, you know, for things to do with women who, and some, certain emails really make you, oh, pay attention, listen, even if they're not quite right for you. Mm -hmm. But then others just feel like people are just sending out sort of a mass template email to oh, a yeah. bunch of people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's really disheartening out there. And actually, sometimes when we do get random emails in and someone in my team says, oh, we've got this um, proposal in from this company. They really want to work with us. I like what they're making and they seem really nice. And, you know, I'll come back and say, are you going to interrupt your most you know senior vip contacts some journalists that you really respect are you going to interrupt their day and tell them about this thing mm. would you be confident enough to say stop what you're doing i want to tell you about something it's really amazing for these reasons mm. and if you realize that actually it's just quite nice but doesn't have a particular purpose or the founder isn't you wouldn't introduce that founder because they might be a little bit difficult but you like the product it's like who are you going to introduce them to who are you going to what are you going to say and if they can't do that 
it falls out of the conversation very quickly. But it's a really brilliant way of going, first and all, before we start this whole process, which is really involved and really mm-hmm. long-winded, would you pick up the phone to so-and-so and say, listen to this? I think that's such a great criteria because even the second you say that, it's like, oh, the stakes are suddenly higher. And it's like, would you personally stake your own relationships and reputation and you know, the ability to then perhaps pitch future clients who you really mm-hmm. are keen on because hopefully and the people you're, you know, talking to, journalists or influencers, whoever, they get to know you as someone who only puts forward the best and only shows them things they'll be genuinely interested in. But I want to come back to your journey after Mr. and Mrs. Smith mm-hmm. because it clearly had such an important effect on you and it's yes. quite formative in how you look at that world. But then you left. You know, at what point did you decide that you were ready to go out and do your own thing? What made you decide to leave? Yeah, so basically, I mean, I loved my time there. Mm. But when I started there, it was a much smaller business. And it was about small trips to small little interesting places all over Europe at the time. That's what I was focused on. And then I went to Melbourne for a year in Australia to help um, build their Asia Pacific team and work in the team over there, which was great. And then when I came back, um, the company had got bigger, which is fantastic for them. Very successful but it turned it did turn a corner into more luxury than yeah. curious little places and i was interested in the architecture and the formation of these tiny places and then when it got bigger i realized that it was someone else's dream job at that point and actually they need to get someone else in who loves the luxury sector mm. and that just isn't my you know priority in my life is not um yeah it just didn't feel right i felt That's, like i'd yeah. got to an end of a point and it was time to move on. And within that same time period, I'd met an amazing woman called Henrietta Thompson, who is a phenomenal journalist. And she, um, we met because I wanted her to be a reviewer for Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which she then became. But she and I, when we got talking, had loads of brilliant projects on. And I'm a spreadsheet lover. And I ended up helping build these project spreadsheets for her, which she eventually called um, a cod, which is chart of dreams. Oh wow! So she was like, "That is amazing." This is the cod, and this is so helpful. And then she was very encouraging of me resigning when I was ready to resign anyway. She gave me the stability to go freelance because I basically went and worked for her straight away or okay. with her. Sure. So I had a income more or less guaranteed mm. as soon as I left, which is such a luxury. Again, if you're thinking of changing career, yeah. I didn't have that really nerve-wracking period of instability where I didn't know where my income was coming from. Mm. I had a plan for that and I more or less made her promise that she'd pay me that money because I never thought I was entrepreneurial and I did not think I'd ever want to be a freelancer. I like, I used to like knowing exactly what I was getting at the end of the month so I could plan my life around it and that is long gone. But I actually like the period that I'm in now kind of more than that. It keeps me Buzzing. So I worked with her and she works. And what were you in, doing with her? So she is a design writer and okay. she does work in um, the luxury field as well. But she'd written some books on sustainable design and sustainable fashion. She was doing some lovely projects with Mulberry and with a company called Nightimber. And I was basically just assisting. So okay. I helped her seek source images and I was doing research. And she and I went to Milan to the design wow. fair together. I paid for my own flight and things, but I shared her bedroom actually. Yeah. She's really generous because it's absolutely unaffordable to a new freelancer to go to Milan. It's outrageous. Um, And she introduced me to her friends who just happened to be a very influential bunch of people in the design industry. And we immediately became friends because I felt very much like I came home when I joined the design industry, Mm. where it's about creating something not only aesthetically beautiful, ideally, but something that functions, that works. And when a designer is making a design 
and it can be a mug or a microphone or a table, they are thinking of the end user. And I love that. But I'm quite curious as to how things then progressed from you being a freelancer, being self-employed, but mm-hmm. having this one sort of steady client, essentially, mm-hmm. which I think is a really smart thing for anyone who's listening and wants to consider going freelance, like making sure you're set up with, like you said, a steady income yeah. from the get-go um, can really save you some sleepless nights. Mm. Um, so, But you were doing that. Yes. And then how did things kind of progress from there? And again, it just, as soon as I announced that I was freelance... To loads of my friends and other people that I'd been connected to at Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So there's a woman called Olivia Triggs who runs a brilliant um, design agency called Breed London. Mm. She looks after Kate Moross and Danny Sangro and great artists. She and I'd become really good friends um, after we used one of her artists in one of our campaigns we were doing at Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And as soon as she found out that I was going freelance, she thought of me when she was planning an event. And could I help her with that? And of course, I was delighted to help her with that. And that happened numerous times where just the more people knew, and that was via LinkedIn or Facebook or Mm. whatever platform I was using at the time, I was being quite vocal about the fact that I was in a cafe with my pad ready to go. What do people need me to do? Does anyone want any help with anything? And also just you know, every event I went to, just talking to people. Again, like you've written in your book, which I've read, obviously, the kind of difference between people that think networking is this tiring, scary process of kind of having to work the room. But actually, it's whoever you happen to be next to or someone's sister at a birthday party. You know, if they do something interesting and you've got something in common, you're essentially networking, but you're actually just socialising and you like each other. And suddenly they're part of your network, but it wasn't consciously networking. That's how I always think about it. I think people, like you say, people get so scared about it. But I always just think of networking with in quotation marks as just mm-hmm. having a chat and just if you're interested in people, then you can't really go wrong. And I think the key thing is to be genuinely interested in people and to be curious. Definitely. And I think that serves you well in so many careers and lines of work, particularly when you work in an industry where your connections and contacts and being interested in people is so important. Definitely. And I mean, to some people that just does not come remotely naturally. And then I hope they find jobs that doesn't rely on having really good Mm. relationships with lots of human beings. Because actually, you know, our editor, he often laughs about it. He's the most brilliant writer, but he is really shy. And he is not going to go to a party on his own and talk to whoever. He'd Mm. rather go home and be with his kids. You know, fine, because we bring lots of work in and we are delighted that he works with us and actually I'm really glad he's not going out finding loads of other work because he's too busy (laughs) but But actually you know it's just not his his way of getting business but he just happens to be a brilliant writer so he's gonna have work forever because he's phenomenal at what he does Mm. but it doesn't rely on a massive network of people and and for you in getting this work it sounds like a lot of it was inbound Mm -hmm. and came from you being quite vocal about the fact that you are now like essentially a gun for hire Mm -hmm. Was there an element of pitching and putting yourself forward for things or was it genuinely just most of it coming to you? Genuinely, yeah, I didn't have to do Which pitching. is incredible. In fact, we, we've really just started pitching now. Okay. Now, all these years later where we've suddenly gone, actually, I love all the work that's come our way and we're still very selective. You know, we filter out. It's probably one in 10 things that comes into us that we'll actually inquire about and proceed on. Mm. We get so much, we get so many inquiries. It's actually too much to handle a lot of the time. But actually, we're not we're not being proactive in that area. And a year ago, I started to feel that there were loads of amazing people out there in the world that I want to work with. And if they're never going to find you unless you just get in touch with them. But we haven't ever had to do that, which is, again, amazing. But 
um, we go to lots of events. We talk to lots of people. So some of it might have come to us, but it will have been because I'll have gone to their event or their private view or I will have bumped into them at the London Design Festival because I've gone to a couple of lectures or mm. something. There's loads of proactive activity happening, but the actual incoming phone call might come to us. But I'm in lots of places because I'm really excited and curious about everything. So I want to go to loads of things. Mm. And then, you know, if people hear your name a few times or, you know, lots of the clients we've worked with are really high profile and then they are generous and they tell people. So it's their friends and their relatives and their other, a different type of collaborator with them will then inquire about, well, who did your PR? Because that worked really well. And then the phone call comes in. So it's all basically come in. Organically, that's amazing and incredible position to be in. I think it's testament to Zettler's reputation because, as I said earlier, I've kind of observed your work and what you do and the company for some time now. And I think I've only ever seen it uh, related to or in conjunction with really interesting projects and mm, clients. And that's I think nice that's, to hear. Yeah, it's mm. a really sort of organic way of getting things about. But before we get into sort of the day-to-day of where Zettler is now, I really want to understand how you scaled up from being a one-woman show mm-hmm. two and a half years ago to a team of nine, did you yes, say, yeah. now? Because in two and a half years, that's quite a lot. I know. And I think for people out there who are, you know, sort of, what I think of as service consultants, which is, you know, what you were mm-hmm. up until a couple of years ago, who are one woman, who essentially they're businesses, but they are just a one-person business. I think that challenge of how to grow is really, there, are, there isn't that much guidance there about how to do it. No. So my first question is, at what stage did you realise that you could or should hire someone else? Mm-hmm. So I think that was actually the scariest one of all of them, was the first person because when you're free and you're freelance, having the idea, the notion of having someone next to you all the time is actually awful. Mm. I do, even however helpful they might be, I don't want someone there every day. Mm. I liked turning up to my little desk in my little studio with lots of other freelancers and just getting on with whatever I wanted and realising that oh, I'd looked after some interns before at previous businesses and having to delegate things and then check everything and then recheck it and get them to... Uh, I just wasn't ready for the responsibility of that and yeah. actually paying a second salary when you only pay one and you have to... Really, one of the pieces of advice that Henrietta gave me when I was scaling up was how much money do you really have to make? Because I think people, when they even, they're going freelance, they think that you suddenly have to be making, you know, 10 grand a month or something, you know, mm. crazy when you're a one-man band. And actually, she said, write down how much your life costs... You know, if you weren't going to be really lavish and buy things, which is just not my way of living anyway, actually, it wasn't very much money to to survive on my own. Okay. And then to get that second person, it's probably only one other contract per month that could essentially pay for their salary. Wow. Okay. You know, because if you're able to get this monthly contract that is, you know, around £2,000 and you can afford to have someone else with you, yeah. obviously, you've got to have the resources human and and psychological to cope with having another client but it wasn't a massive leap Mm. but actually in terms of getting that money in the bank so I could start paying immediately I was doing 18 hour days I was exhausted and it was the last few months of being on my own I really had to put in just like upsetting hours I was really tired and my friends were kind of concerned about how (laughs) wrecked I looked a lot of the time but actually I'm glad I did do that because it meant that I could you know, work out what I was doing and what I needed to do and get more business in 
and then have this other person sitting next to me, which in the end, I was kind of dreading that moment. But as soon as they arrived, it was a lovely moment suddenly having a wingman Mm. and things need to go out immediately. You know, journalists need images within five minutes and I'm at, on my way to a meeting and I could call someone and they would send them. The beauty of it. I it's mean, so it was so ridiculous to me to, and to have someone help me because, you know, I did 18 hours a day because I'm also, I do things in a slightly meticulous way. So you send a, a magazine to someone if you're helping someone promote their magazines, but you're going to wrap it up and it's going to look nice Nicely, and there's going to be a, a handwritten nice note. note yeah. And yeah, so I'd be at my studio till two, three in the morning, sometimes having done nothing but ribbon bowing for six hours and you're tired anyway. And you're just so tired, but you know that if this is the first thing that someone's going to have on their desk, a tangible thing, and that's their first introduction to a brand you're representing, you can't just stuff a thing in a jiffy bag and off it goes. It's got to be, A, it's your brand. So if they know it from me, I want them to feel like they're getting a gift. But then also I'm representing someone else. So I want the introduction of their product or magazine or whatever it is to also be a really special thing to receive. And having someone to help me with that was just literally half of my week <laughs> spent That's... not wrapping tissue paper around things and doing bows. And actually it was vital. The first mm. person that you hired presumably was to kind of mirror the sorts of things that you'd been doing. Is kind of. It was a one, it was kind of a the percentage of things that was actually, it was all the things that people didn't automatically come to me for. So people wanted my ideas mm-hmm. and they wanted my contacts. Mm-hmm. But to get my ideas and contacts and to maintain that relationship with all of those people that I had, everything had to leave the studio in a certain way. So it was all those packaging you know, if I met someone really interesting in an event and I got their business cards, I suddenly had someone that could put those names and addresses into a database yeah. as opposed to, you know, they weren't going to take over calling that person saying, hi, I work with Sabine, mm. but they could help the admin level. Which is a lot of the work. Oh, my that's, God. Yeah. That's something that I find constantly is I don't understand how admin, which needs to be done, but often doesn't feel that productive. Mm-hmm. You know, you can spend a day going through emails and not feel like you've achieved anything, but it's just so time consuming. Oh, absolutely. And so presumably having someone take that off your plate, the things that aren't, like you say, proprietary to Sabine, people mm-hmm. aren't coming to you to do the emails. They're coming to you for other I suppose higher level things. Yeah, so but they're still ex- Yeah, sorry, but they are expecting me to be organised and to have my stuff together when they want something to go out immediately or a prototype suddenly works. You know, if a prototype's been broken for a while and suddenly they've worked it out and the release can go out the next day, or I want to deliver that thing to someone to have everything lined up and ready to go. And those things were starting to slightly crack. You know, my contacts weren't in my database if I needed to get something out immediately. If I didn't have two or three days to prepare, I'd be in trouble. So that was really hard. And of course, when I had some help, then I was able to do other interesting projects. And the more interesting projects, the more inquiries you get. And then it was the decision at that point was, do I want to keep saying yes to these incredibly interesting, exciting projects? Mm -hmm. If yes, I need someone else again. And if no, let's just keep going as we are. And that's fine. And we just got too many amazing (laughs) projects through the door. And it was, yeah, I couldn't turn them down. So... What I'm sort of hearing from that is that the business in terms of extra business, client business came before the hires. Yes. Mostly as opposed to the other way around. Yeah. Which I think is just really useful to kind mm-hmm. of frame and clarify. Yeah, Because sure. I think sometimes people don't quite understand which has to happen first. Uh-huh. Um, and whether it's like, oh, having an extra person will allow you to go out and pitch for more. But really, you need to be, I guess, a little bit overloaded. 
yeah. before you kind of say, okay, let's expand. And I think that's why the first one's so hard because that's when you feel personally because there's only one of you the real overloadedness but actually every person since then there's been a bit more of a plan to it so actually if we want to start doing more self-initiated projects we are not going to be able to manage the the admin and the research without someone else here because I still have to go out and get lots of new business you know or you know respond to these inquiries coming in there's loads of new business to be done still in the fact that you have to go and have meetings with them do you like them are you interested mm. um and everyone was kind of busy doing their part of the the project or whatever it is so yeah we wanted to do more marketing related things so we now have someone who focuses on marketing called Emily and we have our social media part of how we help artists and makers Mm -hmm. we don't actually do much social media on behalf of any companies anymore because after all these years actually I think the most authentic way for anyone to do social media is just to do it. And we never did an individual, so it wasn't like... We work with Camille Wallala. She has always done her own social media. But the company love her Instagram. Oh, it's so good. I mean, she is the ultimate. She's so human and she's... Like, I just... You can hear her. I've been friends with her for years and you can hear her voice in her Instagram and that's what makes people love it. And I think companies want to buy that. And, of course, that's impossible. You know, are you interesting? <laughs> Do people want to hear your point of view? Uh, you can't really buy it, but we can help people with lots of research. You know, things that we think that they should be sharing because they're in a specific industry and actually they should be thought leaders in that. Mm. You know, how can we help bring that information out? But yeah, that was more considered, I think. But we've never hired someone without them already definitely having a lot to do the day they walk in the door. Okay, mm. right. that's very good to know. For anyone listening who, say, has an exciting creative project that they're about to launch, I really want to understand from you, how do you go about doing that? Mm -hmm. How do you go about getting people's attention? What are your top tips for, you know, promoting a project? What people don't often think about is the time it takes before the launch to really think and consider a project. So if it's something that you really want to have in a printed magazine, then you need a few months. You need to get that information information out to journalists three or four months in advance because they close their titles really early so for like the big monthly glosses glosses. just any monthly i guess yeah yeah and so you need to have that information and people find it frustrating i think when they come to us sometimes that they have to pay us for months of work before anything drops and they just don't understand why we would have to be paid for all those months it needs incredible images And again, people spend so much money, and I get it, getting their project or their exhibition or their prints ready for sale or for promotion. But they don't invest at all in images and they take a few pictures on their phone. And as good as they might be, if you want something in print, obviously it needs to be high resolution. And there are loads of different places that you might want it to feature. And everyone doesn't want to feature the same picture. You know, you don't want to, you want to have something special for one title over another and you know the photographs of the founder themselves and some of their creative process and the final product whatever it is on a white background which can be used as a cutout or in a lifestyle setting or whatever there's loads of different images in an ideal world that we'd be able to get of that thing Mm -hmm. and that is a sizable investment sometimes and the lucky people happen to be going out with 
or related to a phenomenal photographer. That's how um, it always happens. I'm always like, oh, who took your photos? Actually, it was my boyfriend. I'm like, damn it. Yes, yeah, exactly. But I mean, find those people. Yeah. Ask your friends and relatives and anyone on Facebook or however you communicate with your closest. Do they know anyone who's really good at that? And they should be paid, of course. It's not about seeking out someone to do your stuff for free. Mm. Think of it as a real investment. You know, which products do you love on the internet or in your favourite magazines? And do you fall in love with them because you read a tiny paragraph about it or because there's a blooming great picture and that is the thing that you visually identify with? You know, again, you mentioned it, but we're visual creatures and we have a desire for things that we see that mean something to us or might be helpful to our lives. And that is the biggest struggle for PR. We can tell the best story, we can tell the best people. And if you don't have the right visuals, it's not going online and it's not going in a magazine. That's really good to know. And mm. in terms of crafting an effective pitch to a publication or a mm-hmm. media outlet, because this is another thing that I think I've sort of hopefully learnt as time has gone on um, in terms of, say, promoting my book or promoting Women Who. I, I'm very open about the fact that I was very, very involved in promoting that because mm-hmm. when something is so dear to you, you want to be making sure you're going out there and communicating the message. And I actually found it quite fun and exciting. Um, And I've learned about how to craft a sort of an effective pitch, but I want to hear your thoughts. You're the expert on it. So how does someone go about doing that? Again, I think people think that a pitch is a pitch. So you're selling a product, say a mug, and you write a press release or a pitch about the mug. And then they don't think about who's going to be reading it. So if you think about, and we always do this with our new clients and everyone finds it horrific and cringeworthy, but where would you want to read about yourself so if it's you know the observer or the ft or wallpaper magazine whatever it might be where do you want to read it and why and who wrote that piece that you particularly love in that newspaper and what are they interested in i think people have this that's another reason why the costs for pr are so confusing to some people because they think okay you've written the press release or we've written one that you can use now we just want you to send this out to everyone and you have to think about every single writer and who those human beings are and it's not even that you can send one type of pitch to one type of newspaper it's the person at the newspaper you know if you know their writing if you care about what they write about you have to have read their previous work and you know that they have a a secondary interest in sustainability so you might weave that into your pitch that how something's made and why they'd care about it it from an environmental perspective and someone else might be into architecture or something but you have to that's what's so time consuming is you know different images for different writers and different pitches for different writers and just making sure that you're thinking about your one product from every single angle Mm. and it could be something as simple as you know how it's made it could be why it's made it could be how you got to this point where you're making something you know the entrepreneurial angle and the materiality and the production and you know where you want it to be retailed and how you could visually merchandise it you know what shoot have you chosen and why and who did the set design actually and who did the photography because those are all stories too and I think that that's when people realize what an, a storm it is to create an effective PR campaign is that you know there is no two people on earth so don't say the same thing to two different people who you yeah. want to be interested in your I thing. think that's such good advice I think I I remember hearing somewhere someone said to me that if you could send the same sort of pitch email to the same two people without changing anything you probably haven't got it 
tailored enough. You know, mm. It should be that specific. So, you know, Jonah at this, you know, publication, she gets something that be completely different to Mary at this publication. Absolutely. And it's not just about changing the name and changing the name of the publication. It's literally, oh, I saw that you wrote about this. Well, I know this is your beat. I know you tend to be interested in this sort of thing. Totally. That's everything. I mean, that is essentially, you know, I often <laughs> slightly put down what we do, but it's not rocket science. Mm. It's being informed and being enthusiastic and hopefully being interesting. You know, it's often as well like sending a birthday card. You wouldn't send the same card. I mean, I don't know what people are like, but I wouldn't send the same birthday card to two people if I cared about them deeply and I really wanted them to respond. You wouldn't just put, you know, dear Ben and dear Adam yeah. and write the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's impossible in our landscape to do that too. That's a really good analogy, actually, because <laughs> when I think about the way I write birthday cards, they usually are full of little in-jokes mm. and really specific. It's never just... Dear Hannah, happy birthday, kiss. Like, no. It's never like that. No. So that's a really, really great analogy. Bear that in mind. <laughs> Are there any common mistakes that you think people should avoid when they're doing their own PR? I think assuming that they're the most interesting thing in the world is a key one, <laughs> which sounds quite mean. But I think when people put everything into creating their project... Obviously, they care about it deeply. It's got an emotional value. It's cost them a lot of money often, all their working hours and their weekends and their evenings. And they assume that by the time it comes out, everyone's been waiting. Mm. But also bear in mind that journalists are often overworked and underpaid and they work day and night and they're bombarded with every single potential new product or record or piece of art in the world if they work for a good title they could be getting up to a thousand emails a day God. so think about who you're working with if you know a good PR person this now sounds like self-promotion but if someone can cut through that noise great I am absolutely under no assumption that people can do it themselves but again you have to read the publication that you're writing to and you have to get to know that person and again if you've met them before you know anyone that knows them great ask them something you know or I think it's the assumption I think just don't assume anything mm. and don't be be optimistic but don't be too optimistic but when you press the green light everyone's going to respond to it you have to that's really hard work to get the attention and you know a lot of it is serendipitous it's timing and it's luck and it's hard work and it's never giving up if someone doesn't want to write about something you know go back to them <laughs> sorry to all the journalists out there who are now <laughs> going to be totally badgered but ask them why because you might have just you know there might be a layer that they're just not reading in your pitch you know they go well, I just don't think it's relevant to us because of this but if you've read what they write about and you think your project is totally relevant to them then state your case mm. you know go back in there and say hey you know what you're right I did not go into this in enough detail but I think you'll find the fascinating for this reason mm. and you know, that's worked for me a thousand times. Sometimes I'm just not thinking clearly enough and I'm not communicating something quite subtle that I've just forgotten to put in my pitch because I didn't want it to be too long. Mm -mm. And you go, oh, actually, in that instance, that was the key bit that I forgot or I missed out intentionally, but that was a mistake. So... That's really great advice. I mm -hmm. want to talk a little bit, shift a bit, mm -hmm. to talk about Zettler, the brand, because I kind of see that obviously your kind of main, or I may be wrong in this, but your main business is the kind of client yeah. side of the agency. But I feel like more and more the way I'm observing Zettel is that it's kind of becoming a brand in and of itself. You know, you've got all these different arms besides the client-facing business. You have the yep. shop and you have mm -hmm. films. Mm -hmm. Has that been a conscious decision? It hasn't, in all honesty. We, again, things grow quite organically. I had the production company with my friend Andy from the moment I left Mr and Mrs Smith as well. Okay. So we worked together at the BBC before I was at Smith. 
and he stayed a friend and then we wanted to make some films at Smith. So I got in touch with Andy and we just realized that we had this phenomenal working relationship, even though it didn't really exist yet. But everything I was excited about about film, so was Andy. And I wanted to make a series of films. They didn't come out in the end. We didn't have enough budget, but we had something there. And as soon as I left Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I went to visit my dad. He used to live in, oh, he still lives in America. And on the flight on the way home, I was like, let's just set up a thing. Let's make films for other people. And Henrietta, of course, who helped me um, when I first went freelance, she was the first person we badgered about making some films for her clients. And we did make a couple of films for people that she was working with. And we just fell in love with that process. Lots of them are for our clients because we know how valuable film is in the PR process, mm. you know, especially if you want global press mm. the fact that you can tell a story to someone who's on the other side of the world in two minutes you know they're never going to be able to meet our entrepreneur of choice for a coffee you know it's going to be a real nightmare to try and organize that <laughs> there isn't budgets for that anymore so making a film that's really engaging of course it's great online for pr as well but often it's just my trigger to get that journalist to care about who we're talking about is to watch a film and to say this is who they are are you interested in a bigger feature or something else. That's a really smart strategy, actually. Um, and also, you've mentioned quite a few times now your editor, mm. and Zettler has a really thriving blog. It's, it's yeah. sort of more so than lots of actual genuine editorial sites that I see. Um, what? Why do you have a blog, and how mm. important has that been? I'm curious how important that's been to the client-facing side of your business. Yes. So again, that now actually isn't Anthony. So Anthony does all of the content on our site in terms of our clients and he does all of our press releases and we talk about, he created the tone of voice for Zettler mm -hmm. for all of those other things. But our blog is now written by two brilliant writers who are both ex-journalists or no, no, they're not. They're current journalists, um, but they used to be both in-house at magazines and now they're freelance. Um, so again, they interrogate our clients in a way, in a different way than we do. Mm. Hopefully we're, you know, getting as much information as we can. But, you know, when you send out a press release or a pitch, it's lovely also to have a full interview with that person that goes into real detail. So we'll send that link with our pitches. Oh, Often before they even go online, we'll send them the offline interview blog post and say this is who we're talking about if you want to read more about them here's some more information and then obviously it's just another nice piece of content I hate the word content it just seems so dry but it's really I don't know really what other word to use I know, these days. I, I know. think I started out as being one of those people <laughs> who said oh I can't use that word and um, I don't know how I else know. to describe it I mean they're great features in their own right and they enable you know potential new clients um to see who we're currently working with and we get to talk more about why we care about them so much that we might not be able to communicate in a press release and i want to pull back a bit and ask more general questions mm -hmm. about running a business and being a business founder and entrepreneur mm -hmm. what would you say is the most challenging aspect of what you do i think it has been probably in the last two years and it's managing lots of humans <laughs> I think the work is still re deeply engaging and really exciting. And I'm so grateful that I have lots of people to help mm. with loads of parts of that. And, you know, people are very quick to congratulate me on everything successful that happens at Zettler. But it is obviously a lot of people making that happen. And some projects I'm heavily involved in and some actually my team are now perfectly qualified and knowing and knowledgeable to manage them themselves. We're generally all involved and we all ask each other questions, but it certainly isn't all me. But of course, I don't think I thought much before I started employing people how, of course, they've got complex lives. 
I do. You know, you lose loved ones and you have relationship difficulties and you're tired and you fall unwell occasionally. Hopefully not very often, but that does, of course, happen. And then you have nine employees and that's nine people with complex lives. And I don't resent that. You know, that's what makes us human. But they all have you know, families and they all have friends and they all have relationships and there's lots of uncontrollables there. <laughs> Not that I'd ever want to employ a set of robots, but <laughs> obviously you can plan something beautifully and life happens. So that I find really challenging because I can't really ever predict how much valuable time I'm going to get out of everyone in a month. Mm. So planning projects in advance is quite complicated sometimes. I was just about to say, you sound like an incredibly compassionate leader <laughs> and passionate, uh, compassionate boss, which I think is really important. I was going to ask whether there are any sort of key leadership lessons that you've learnt along the way as mm-hmm. you've grown from one person to nine. I think it's learning what you're really good at. Mm-hmm. I'm sure lots of people have said that to you in the past, but actually I know that I'm not the best writer in the world. I love writing, but I'm not the most articulate person, which I blame on having two foreign parents, which is really unfair, but (laughs) it's their fault. Um, Second languages, you know, I learnt my English from them. Um, And getting people in who are brilliant at things, knowing what you're good at and what you're not, and getting people in who know how to help you with all the areas that you're slightly weak in. And that works for administrative staff. You know, when you know that I do not have enough hours in the day to make sure all of our systems are working, I just don't. I love a spreadsheet, but I don't have time to fill them all in anymore. I just don't. So I I think it's, you know, you're going to lose some of the potential um, finances. You know, people go, oh, you're crazy. You know, I am pretty happy with my salary, but other people feel really sorry for me because I don't earn loads of money. Mm. We do a lot of work for charity and for non-profits. So being massively profitable isn't my end goal. But obviously with every person you bring in, you're sharing some of the turnover you're making but also your life becomes infinitely more enjoyable and I enjoy sharing and so I think yeah bringing in experts sorry I'm going off into a floaty direction no that's really great to hear I think it's really important to hear (coughs) examples of entrepreneurs who are doing things their own way or we hear a lot of stories about you know these big cash rich startups where there's you know millions of pounds of VC funding, mm-hmm. um, which is great and I think for certain types of businesses that's really important. But mm-hmm. I am really interested in hearing about businesses like yours that have mm-hmm. grown organically and continue to do so organically and have perhaps you know obviously profitability is a concern for you, mm-hmm. but also have slightly different goals or slightly different hierarchy of priorities which I think you clearly do yeah definitely I want to also know whether there are any big mistakes that you've made along the way whether as part of Zesta or before Mm -hmm. that you've really learned from and whether there are any lessons there that you could possibly share with listeners definitely I have a tendency even this week I was out horizontal on Tuesday because I was really unwell with just with winter but it took me to the point of literally being the team on Monday night or Tuesday night were literally pushing me out of the door and saying don't come home tomorrow they were being my boss (laughs) in that moment they were like just go home you know you don't need to be here and I brought on a co-director earlier this year called Jess who is now working with me across everything Mm. she was a freelancer for one day a week two years ago And then two days a week, a year ago. And now we run the whole thing together. We earn the same. We are co-directors in Zettler. And it took me too long to realise that I needed someone else to help me to do 
the operational side, the looking after staff, the reviews, the contracts, the invoicing, the everything, all those things that I didn't have anyone in the house to help me with. I should have brought her in a year before, but I'm happy it's worked out like this because mm. I learned lots of lessons along the way. But my invoices were going out late and that means your income comes in late, which means your cash flow isn't functioning. And we've never had any investment, which I'm really happy about. I don't we get a lot of offers of investment as well. And I don't want them at all. <laughs> Why um, is that? I don't want anyone else who obviously investors are interested in making money. That's the point of investing. And I agree with that. And I want to make more money. And yeah. hopefully we can do incredibly useful things with that extra income. But I don't want that drive for for profit or for investment or future income to come from a purely financial place. Mm. You know, and the decisions they might might force me in, in some instances, to make their money back for their deadlines. I just think that it will muddy what we're doing when... <laughs> the, the, the trajectory has been quite emotional and I think there are lots of people out there mostly the men I know in my life who think that that's really floaty and naive it's a naive way to run a business to you know to work with people that you like and to you know take on projects that you know will not make you extra thousands but I'm really happy in that position and I think it's really sustainable to believe in what you do and enjoy what you do and employ people that you really like and it's going to be slower, but I'd gladly do this forever. Mm. I'm not in any hurry. You know, if I can pay my rent and I can pay my bills and I can pay my team and I can sleep really well because I don't feel like I've cut any corners anywhere, then brilliant. That is such an inspiring <laughs> note to end on. Thank you so much, Sabine. Oh, thank you for having me. Up next, it's time for Ask a Tega, in which I answer your pressing career conundrums. This time, I'm dealing with a freelancer who's struggling with how to handle a rude client. Here's the letter. Dear Otega, what do you do when you have to deal with clients who are rude or passive-aggressive? I work as a freelance photographer, and on a recent job, I witnessed a client bullying a staff member I was assigned to work with, and also talking to me in a similar manner. The person in question spoke to me like I was rubbish and was generally being really patronising at the same time as being incredibly confusing with their requests and making me feel like I was the one making mistakes. This is also a client that has messed up my invoices in the past and made comments to the effect of you should be grateful we've given you so many jobs whilst questioning the payment terms I outline which are pretty standard and the same for all my clients. I can't decide how to handle this on the one hand, I want to stand up to them in some way for the sake of my self-respect and also to avoid their negativity. But I also don't know whether to just get over myself and suck it up, as speaking up about it might well lead to me losing future work from them. I really don't know how to deal with this. Help. Perplexed freelancer. I probably don't have to explain that as a freelancer, getting along with your clients well enough so that they actually want to work with you regularly is a pretty smart strategy. Um, getting repeat business is an ideal situation to be in. And I always say to people thinking of going freelance that they almost kind of have to think of themselves as being sort of like a shop or a small business. And you have to be really aware of the customer service you provide. Um, not just when you're kind of on the job, but like before and afterwards, how you respond to emails, being timely, all that sort of thing. If a client thinks that you're rude or unpleasant or difficult to work with, 
it really doesn't matter how talented you are. Chances are, as soon as your contract is up, if not before, um, you'll never hear from them again. Um, what is difficult is when it's your client who's rude or unpleasant or difficult to work with, which is obviously what's happening in this situation. I'm going to be honest, as a freelancer, that puts you in a pretty difficult position. I do think that when you're a full-time employee, in some ways, you're sort of more at liberty to deal with unpleasant co-workers because you don't really have that very pressing fear and real concern of losing your job unless you work in a really dysfunctional workplace but that's another issue um, but generally you can kind of go to HR or you can go to whoever is the problem or their boss and you don't have to worry as much that they you know won't ask you to come back in next week as a freelancer not so much if you piss off the wrong person or piss off whoever your main client contact is there is a good chance you won't be hired again. And that's really unfair and it kind of sucks, but that's the truth. So I think that makes the temptation sometimes to sort of keep stim when it comes to rude clients very real and that's understandable. In the case of this letter specifically, first of all, I'm going to be really pragmatic here just to make your life a little bit easier, perplexed freelancer, and say that you're really not obliged to defend or protect the people on staff that you mentioned are kind of also bearing the brunt of this rude behaviour unless the behaviour you're witnessing is something really bad like sexual harassment or you know someone being overtly abusive or endangering someone else something like that that might sound really callous but otherwise that isn't your issue to deal with that person on staff has a completely separate relationship with their employer it's a completely different dynamic from being a freelancer so I would just kind of say don't feel like you have to put your neck on the line for them it's great and very noble that you want to intervene but I do feel that as a freelancer the onus isn't actually on you to sort that out I'm sure there are probably lots of people who disagree with that but I think that's a really pragmatic way to look at it obviously that advice only applies if what you're talking about is someone being you know a bit snappy or a bit rude as opposed to more serious issues like I mentioned like harassment um, but that isn't what you've mentioned here so I'm just going to take your letter at face value I think the answer to this really boils down to weighing up how well-paying of a client this is how much you need the money and how much this is affecting your mood and your attitude to work. Like, how bad does working with this client make you feel? Do you really dread going to these jobs and, you know, find yourself dreading working them in the lead up to them and feel really crap and deflated in the aftermath? If that's the case, I would totally suggest that you don't work with them. No client or job is worth you feeling that way. But if you feel like you can stomach it and you are someone who's quite good at compartmentalising, which is something that I'm personally not very good at, I have to say. Um, but yeah, if that's something you feel like you can sort of deal with and if they're paying you well enough, then maybe it is worth trying to overlook. I'm not going to make a really blasé comment here like, oh, if they're not nice to you, then just sack it off. Because obviously if that were, if it were that easy from a money point of view, you'd have done that already. One thing I would say is that one of the benefits of being a freelancer is supposedly having a bit more freedom to choose who you work with than when you, you know work in an office and you're working full time. So maybe it's a question of using their behaviour, their bad behaviour, as the incentive you need to just kind of hustle a bit harder to find clients elsewhere so you can replace this client in terms of income sooner rather than later. If you do decide to carry on working with them, 
I think it's worth considering broaching their behaviour somehow just to see if it can be improved before you make a decision to stop working with them. The way I'd go about that is to be just really polite but also firm. So first of all, don't react in the heat of the moment and, you know, clap back if they're hostile or aggressive towards you when you're working on the job. Just try to keep your cool and really avoid the urge to match their behaviour because that will only escalate the situation. And then, you know, after the event is finished or maybe the next day you know, give them a ring or yeah, after the event is finished, take them aside and just say that you notice that they seemed really stressed or tense and ask if there was something that, you know, because obviously you're a photographer, maybe it was something that you weren't capturing, something they'd like you to do differently, you know, without any blame or finger pointing, your angle here is really that you're just trying to do as good a job as possible. I think sometimes just gently flagging that their behaviour was a bit off could sort of be like a, like a wake up call to them that actually their behaviour isn't going unnoticed and you are actually registering that and maybe they haven't realised that they're behaving sort of snappily and being quite rude and passive aggressive and often just kind of saying something like that can sort of embarrass people into acting more politely. Um, In terms of giving, you know, you mentioned they're given confused instructions. When that happens, relay them back. And I think this is just good practice generally for working with clients. If you're getting confused instructions, just relay those back. So say something like, you've said X, but you've also said Y. I just want to make sure that I understand exactly what it is you want me to do. Again, do that in a really non-accusatory way and make it clear that the reason you're voicing these concerns is because you want to make sure that the job goes smoothly. One thing I would say is watch your tone. When you're being bullied in any work context, it can be quite tempting to apologise and sort of end up on the back foot in that way. Don't do that because when it comes to bullies of any sort not just in the workplace but any sign of weakness weakness can I think be a bit of a red flag and that will only encourage them to behave even worse so resist the urge to be overly apologetic if you haven't actually done anything wrong um if you're doing a good job and you're sure of that don't feel the need to apologize um a real red flag for me in your letter though besides the obvious issue it makes me think that you really should consider dropping this client was the fact that you what the thing you said about invoices clients who make you chase them relentlessly to pay you or act as though they're doing you some sort of favor by paying you really aren't worth your time i think that's a really negative sign and i wonder whether on balance considering you know the unpleasantness of working with them the aggro they give you around then paying you i wonder if they're really a client worth your time personally i would say do yourself a favor and be kind to yourself and you know just stop working with them and maybe again like I said earlier maybe this is about making a conscious decision and an active effort to find another regular client that can replace them from an income point of view and once you've done that feel free to sack them off um I really hope that helps and please do let me know how things work out whatever you decide if you've got a career question that you're struggling with and that you'd like my opinion on email podcast at womenwho.co and I'll do my best to help in our next episode And that's it for this month. Thank you for listening. I hope you found that as useful as I did. For more where that came from, follow me at Otega Uagba on Instagram and Twitter and follow Women Who at Women Who. Or you can head to www.womenwho.co to sign up for our weekly newsletter, find out about upcoming events and generally stay in the loop with everything Women Who related. If you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to subscribe to get the next episode straight to your phone. And please leave me a nice review whilst you're there. And of course, spread the word and tell the working women in your life to listen as well. See you next month.
T S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S S